Welcome to the Wine Camp podcast, where we look deeply into regenerative organic and Demeter biodynamic certified wine growing and farming. My name is Craig Camp, and I am the general manager of Trun Vineyard and author of the Wine Camp blog at craigcamp.com, where I am chronicling our regenerative mission at Trun. This is meant to be a podcast for those that aspire to, as the Regenerative Organic Alliance says, farm like the world depends on it. These interviews will be focused on our work here at Truen Vineyard in Oregon's Applegate Valley, but will also include the work of other farmers committed to regenerative agriculture. And now for today's interview. Hello, welcome to Truen Talk, where we dig deep into regenerative agriculture and wine growing. Today, our guest is Garrett Long, our Director of Agriculture who has transformed our farm in the, the time that he's been with us. And we're going to look at, take a closer look at uh, no-till and carbon sequestration today. So welcome, Garrett. Uh, could you tell us about your background and how you came to Troon? Yeah, the, my experience here at Troon is really a culmination of my whole background, academic, practical farming experience, research, all of that. I really fell in love with animals at a young age. You know, my family had tons of pets and just a menagerie around, and uh, we went camping a lot during the summers, and it really helped me to just fall in love with nature. And so for college, I studied biology at a liberal arts college, Whitman College in Washington State, and again, continued to just pursue uh, biology and my understanding of animal science. And it was during that time that I um, first became exposed to the idea of farming. And so my first farming experience was after college. I did a work exchange program in Southern California called WOOF. It stands for the Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. And what I did was a, a work exchange for three months. They provided room and board and education about organic farming. And I really got to cut my teeth learning about all of the practices that we're employing here at Troon. Like, composting and no-till and gardening, orcharding, animal husbandry, uh, wildlife habitat, conservation, all that sort of stuff. That was my first time. Um, that farm is called Apricot Lane Farms and it became an extremely formative experience for me. I ended up farming with them for five years and I went to grad school at UC Davis. I did my master's in soils and biogeochemistry for about two and a half years in between to stints farming at Apricot Lane. And during that time, I really fell in love with soil science. I fell in love with farming. I fell in love with biodynamics. And I better understood how all of these really complex and, bio, or, sorry, complex and dynamic interactions uh, really fed this kind of system that was in turn feeding my soul. And so I wanted to pursue that further and get a deeper academic understanding. So that's when I went to grad school and studied soil science. And everything uh, has really brought me to this point and deepened my understanding and appreciation for farming biodynamically. And what brought you to Troon and, and Southern Oregon? We have a biodynamic consultant that we use here at Troon named Andrew Beatty. And he was actually the farm or the, the garden and orchard manager at Apricot Lane. So I was living on one half of the duplex with seven other woofers, and he was on the other half. And uh, it was in those early days that he became a real mentor of mine. And so this is now our third project that we're working on together. Um, 
you know, there was there were there were a couple of brief stops in between grad school and coming up here to Southern Oregon. And one of those stops was actually in Napa Valley as well. It was my first real exposure to the wine industry. And I worked for Marciano Estate, a private family uh, that was really interested in installing this biodynamic uh, farm, this resilient ecosystem on their historic family estate. And so Andrew and I also worked together on that property and that project. And when that one came to an end, uh, he told me about this job at Troon. He posted a farm hand and seller hand, I believe, was the position. And when I came up and interviewed for that position, I think there was recognition that I had a little more to offer um, than, than splitting my time during this busy upcoming harvest season. And so I think we kind of co-created this, uh, this position of director of agriculture, which is continuing to expand today. What are your impressions of Southern Oregon? I, you, I don't believe you'd ever spent any time here before before you came to Troon. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what are your impressions as far as a, a place to farm biodynamically? Well, I think this is a really ideal context for biodynamic farming and biodynamic viticulture specifically. You know, I grew up in Washington State. My whole upbringing through college was in Washington. So I'm very much a product of the Pacific Northwest and love it. And then the last 10 years of my farming experience have all been in California. And so Southern Oregon represents this sort of intersection between the Pacific Northwest and California. Uh, we have uh, the most biodiverse region in the entire United States is this Klamath, Klamath Siskiyou eco region. Um, so we've got species represented from the Northwest, from California. We've got endemic species that can only be found here. So this is a really exciting area because of the biodiversity that's present here, but also because of the climate. You know, there's the, the uh, slogan, I think, of Grants Pass is, it's the climate. And uh, it, it really uh, is a climate that's super suitable for biodynamic farming. It's very arid in the summer, which helps with our, um, you know, powdery mildew control and fungal pressure in the vineyard. So we have to spray less. Um, use fewer pesticides and things like that. So it's a really ideal climate for wine grapes, but the idea of biodynamics is to integrate, you know, vegetables, orcharding, animals, uh, compost, all these sorts of activities that support the whole farm approach, uh, holistic farming approach. And so this is really just a, an ideal place to live and work and farm. So we wanted to focus on carbon sequestration today, which is uh, obviously a hot topic, uh, and uh, we're facing the climate change, and, and agriculture comes up as one of the leading uh, uh, sources for, for sequestering carbon. Uh, why is carbon sequestration so important in agriculture? Yeah, you're spot on. I think climate change is, is the most prominent example. There's tons of practical reasons that we'll get into over the course of this conversation, but to frame it in a bigger picture, a global context, in the, in the context of the global carbon cycle, agriculture is a really important solution to climate change. You know, there's so many practices um, that we'll, again, get into, all of which pull atmospheric carbon down into the soil via plants, photosynthesis. You know, photosynthesis on a technical level is combining carbon dioxide and water in the presence of sunlight to create these carbohydrates or these sugars, and then plants also breathe out oxygen, which is a really beautiful balance, and to think about plants balancing all of the other 
animals, microbes, all life on Earth that respire CO2, we breathe out CO2, plants are really that, that uh, critical component that help us take CO2 out of the atmosphere and sequester it into the carbon, or sequester it into the soil. Well, how can farms better sequester carbon? Yeah, so some of those practices I was just mentioning, you know, um, starting with composting, we take a whole farm approach, which means that every plant that we weed out of the vegetable garden or out of our native, um, you know, botanical garden, um, all of the kitchen scraps from the tasting room, um, the pumice from the wine making activities, um, they're all combined with uh, local organic dairy manure that we source from our neighbors. Um, and we build compost piles that over the year are managed thermophilically and continue to break down. Those 250 tons of finished compost a year we spread across our 100-acre vineyard. And that compost is full of microorganisms that help inoculate the soil. Those microbes are symbiotic partners of plants. They exist in the root systems in close proximity and compatibility with plants where plants intentionally leak out those sugary root exudates to feed the microorganisms. That's their fuel source. Microbes use that carbon as energy to then secrete organic acids and other enzymes to break down the soil and the organic matter around them, releasing these nutrients and solubilizing it, making it available to these plant roots, again, just in close proximity. Mycorrhizal fungi specifically help um, it, they, they actually sort of infect in a way is how you can think of it, but they, they kind of tap into plant roots and have a direct uh, line to exchange carbon as well as water and nutrients that the mycorrhizae are able to harvest from the soil, effectively extending the plant's root zone by about 10 times, which is really amazing. Um, symbiotic partnership that's been uh, evolving for millions and millions of years. So, you know, at a very basic level, the more plants, the more living plants that are actively photosynthesizing throughout the year is the real key to carbon sequestration on farms. And I think there's a bunch more around animal integration and no-till that we can talk more specifically about. Um, well, let's, let's talk about no-till now. How does a no-till fit into this kind of a farming strategy? I think it's really important. I think you know, before we talk about the benefits of no-till, I think it's important to talk about what tilling actually does to the soil physically and, and the justification for why in our regenerative organic certification, for example, why tillage is specifically limited and how you have to track your tillage and sort of justify it as well. So, you know, plowing helped um, modernize industrial or, or sort of started this agricultural revolution thousands of years ago you know, our ancestors realized that if you break up the soil, it, you'll get better yields, you'll get better plant growth, you'll get better uh, nutrient availability. I don't know if the perception of how nutrients were cycling was there at the time, but it was just a cause and effect um, observable relationship that was very clear. And what's happening when you break up soil, when you disturb it, when you mix the lower soil horizons with the upper surface horizons, what you're doing is exposing all of this organic matter that's about 50% carbon and the rest of it's, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, calcium, sulfur, all of these other macronutrients that make up organic matter. The whole composition of soil 
can be only a couple of percent organic matter, you know, maybe one to five, six percent in most of these Western soils. And although it makes up a very tiny proportion of all of of soil, which is the rest of that composition is made up by about 50% air, just pore space, just physical empty space that can be filled with water or air. And then the other half of that roughly is, is minerals. You know, that's, that's the actual geologic material that's breaking down and weathering to become those, those, those nutrients for plants and microbes. Um, as you till as you break that up and you mix those layers what you're doing is you're exposing that organic matter and those microbial communities to a lot more oxygen than what was existing in the soil before that oxygen both fuels the microbial respiration it allows them to sort of eat and metabolize and break down organic matter releasing those nutrients out to the plant that related to plant growth that was observed but also that's a loss of organic matter in the soil and as those microbes eat and respire they breathe out co2 which increases CO2 in the atmosphere and decreases carbon in the soil. So, you know, my, um, my professor in grad school, my, my PI, told me he used a, a house metaphor for tillage. And so soil structure is largely made up of, as I was saying, all of those pore spaces, you know, as earthworms and gophers and voles move through the soil all these burrowing animals they create channels for water to infiltrate for roots to grow more freely um, and that soil structure is built over you know millennia centuries at a minimum and as you destroy that soil structure and you expose that organic matter to oxygen and you increase microbial respiration you increase that nutrient availability of plants, but what you sacrifice in exchange is that soil structure, sort of demolition of the house. So if you've got all of these different microbes and different communities of microbes representing decomposition, you know, they're taking all of the dead stuff, leaves and uh, manure and things like that, and breaking that down, they're cycling nutrients, you know, they're kind of maybe the bathroom of the house, if you will. Um, and you've got all of these different rooms, these different... Um, capabilities of different suites of organisms to serve all of these functions of soil um, as a growing medium for plants or as, as many farmers may think of it, um, you are destroying that house and also those, the, so the functionality is destroyed as well as um, a lot of those microbes which are very content in their specific little soil environment. The pH is just right, the amount of oxygen is just right, and oxygen is actually toxic to many uh, microbes that are considered anaerobes or ones that can't tolerate oxygen. And so as they're exposed to more oxygen, the aerobes are thriving and breaking down organic matter and the anaerobes are actually dying off and sort of the contents of their bodies are then exposed and made available to plants too. So it makes perfect sense from a simple cause and effect relationship how tillage can destroy soil structure but promote plant growth so those are the real negative sides of it. The benefits of no-till is to preserve that structure, to create a more complex house uh, where there's more functionality, there's greater diversity, and with that diversity comes resilience. You know, one of the important um, uh, abilities of these microbes, these beneficial microbes that are so, so closely associated with plant roots is to prevent pathogens and prevent disease and the greater diversity you have of microbes, you are 
in, in, in several ways, preventing pathogens from coming in. First, you're just out-competing them. They're taking up the resources where pathogens can't get in. And some of these uh, organisms are actually antagonistic. You know, they'll secrete other sort of enzymes and, and, and attack, essentially, pathogenic organisms from coming in. So there's this sort of protective armor that microbes provide for plants, both on the root system as well as on the leaf surface when you apply it as a foliar application, apply, say, compost tea or other um, beneficial microbes. So, you know, the, the list goes on and on as far as the benefits of no-till but um, I think the most important thing is really preserving that soil structure. So benefits, that's the important word. Uh, uh, how does this make better wines and more nutritious produce? So, you know, the, I think the biggest thing that I think about in biodynamic farming and just a whole systems approach to farming is you're creating this context for life to thrive. And our compost tea brewers, we're creating this perfect environment for these microbes to reproduce and diversify. And then we put them back out onto our farm to serve the benefits that we've been naming. As you create this context for healthier vines that are better able to suppress pathogens, they're better able to access nutrients without the additions of fertilizers, um, they are more closely tied to those suite of microbes that do shift seasonally with temperatures, with water availability, with the root exudates that each plant, you know, uniquely secretes to feed specific organisms that are their partners, you know, sort of almost sending out a chemical signal to say, hey, we need more boron or we need more phosphorus. And they can actually send out that chemical signal via the composition of the root exudates and encourage specific suites of microbes to go out and scavenge those nutrients and trade it back for the for that carbon. So, you know, by creating this context for plants to thrive, for microbes to thrive, and ultimately animals that we integrate intentionally into our system, we're creating this context where everyone is supporting each other. You know, I talked about how composting is really a way of, of reducing waste on our farm and cycling that back into nutrition and that entire inoculation, that diversity of microbes that we're putting back out onto the farm. Um, and as we create a more, more um, healthy and immune supportive system, it leads for these plants uh, to thrive and have everything available that they need. And as plants have all of these um, nutrients and water and oxygen, obviously, in the atmosphere, or CO2, excuse me, in the atmosphere, what they're able to do is concentrate those nutrients into the fruit. And that, that's both, you know, a tomato and a wine grape. And so, you know, we've seen a, a serious decline in the nutrient availability of our foods, you know, um, forget the statistics, but something like a 50% reduction in many foods have been identified, and that's closely linked to farming practices, these sort of industrial farming practices. Biodynamics and regenerative agriculture presents a lens by which we can um, densify, if, if you will, the, the nutrient um, density of these foods, more nutritious, as well as, I think, more complex wines that are reflective of place. So let's talk more specifically about what's being done at Troon. 
For instance, there are multiple types of no-till being used. There's the vineyard alleys, undervine, we're, we're growing hay, there's pollinator habitats. Uh, how, do, how are these strategies differ and, and what is the, the process for, for getting these plants in the ground? So we used probably seven, eight different mixes last year, um, cover crop mixes, three of them in the vineyard. Let's just start there as a basis. So, you know, we've been doing this big vineyard replanting project, and as vines move from their first year into their second year, we move from a plow-down mix, which this year we selected triticale as a cereal grain, about 60% grasses, 20% peas, and 20% daikon radish. And by having peas as the legume, radish as this brassica crop that um, can fumigate the soil as well and sort of, again, um, create um, a healthier, resilient soil system. By using those three in the first year of the vine's life, we grow the cover crop and then we till it back under. All of that biomass, all of that green manure is tilled back into the soil and made available for those microbes. But we want to shift to no-till agriculture as early as possible. So in the second year of the vine's life, we transition to using a permanent alley mix. Because we're grazing our sheep and our chickens in the vineyard during the winter um, season, the dormant period of the vines, um, we use a mix, a wine grape pathway mix that we purchased from Buzz, Cover Crop Seeds. Rebecca Sweet has been really supportive of our system, a lot of understanding of um, cover crop mixes in vineyard systems. And we added to that wine grape pathway mix um, 50 pounds of perennial ryegrass as well. And that's a really great forage crop for our sheep. Um, so we, as we establish that permanent alleyway in the second year, we continue to do tillage under the vine. And the idea, despite, you know, talking about the, the, the and we added to that wine grape pathway mix um, 50 pounds of perennial ryegrass as well. And that's a really great forage crop for our sheep. Um, so we, as we establish that permanent alleyway in the second year, we continue to do tillage under the vine. And the idea, despite, you know, talking about the, 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 the consequences of tillage, the purpose for continuing to do that undervine cultivation is to limit any sort of competition with these really young vines. You know, a lot of perennial crops like fruit trees or grapevines will produce a really, will grow a really deep tap root. They'll be more self-sustaining. They'll be able to tap into the groundwater, um, more self-reliant without the additions of irrigation and fertilizer and things like that. But in the early stages when the vines are still young, their root system would potentially be in competition with the root system of some other grasses and legumes and things that were intentionally seeding there. So in the third year of the vine's growth, we transition to a permanent cover. The alley is already established the year before, and we seed a super diverse mix of mostly low-growing, not super vigorous um, cover crops that are going to grow up and create a lack of airflow or air circulation in the canopy of the vines. And we also include a ton of wildflowers. You know, those wildflowers provide pollen and nectar sources for pollinators, as well as habitat for beneficial insects. So we incorporate a lot of flowering plants into the vineyard as well. And all of those are specifically chosen, again, with that idea of diversity in mind. There's more than 30 different species of plants that we use in those three vineyard cover crop mixes. 
Um, and that's just getting started. You know, the vineyards make up about half of our total acreage. Um, but within that, we also have vegetable gardens, orchards, uh, permaculture style food forest. We've got pastures that we're grazing. We've got a hay field and we've got more than 10 acres of biodiversity reserves or sort of wildlife habitat. So we've got this, this swale area that remains dry throughout a lot of the year. But as we're here in mid-March, we've actually got water running through that now. Been very blessed with a lot of um, precipitation this winter. Um, we, and then we've also got some riparian areas where we're really trying to establish native plants as well. So some of those other seed mixes are, or all of our seed mixes, I should say, are specifically chosen for the specific enterprise and what I might consider resource concerns. So for example, our wine grapes don't need a lot of nutrition. They really thrive in our soils, which are very fertile and again, represent, you know, geologically, our soils represent a really great region for wine growing because we have all of those nutrients that, that um, our, our grapevines really need to thrive. Whereas in orchard systems or annual vegetable systems, a greater uh, uh, abundance of nutrients is needed, particularly nitrogen. And so we're looking to add these legumes, which again have this really beautiful symbiotic partnership with microbes that live in their root systems. They actually uh, envelop this group of microorganisms that will fix nitrogen. That process happens only in an anaerobic setting, meaning that those microbes are not tolerant of oxygen. So the plant root literally grows an envelope over these little communities of rhizobia or other um, examples of nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And what they're able to do is take nitrogen out of the atmosphere, Earth's atmosphere is more than 70% made of just nitrogen, which is inert and unreactive, and through a very energy-intensive process, meaning that it requires a lot of that carbon produced by the plant, the plant feeds the nitrogen-fixing bacteria, and they convert that atmospheric nitrogen into a plant-available form, into ammonium. And so we are using these legumes. You know, some examples are clovers, of which we use probably six different types of clovers on the farm, um, vetch, trefoil, um, alfalfa. There's a ton of examples of these nitrogen-fixing legumes. And so we're starting to incorporate more and more of those into the vegetable garden, as well as in the orchards and food forests. So for example, in the orchard, we're using a mix of half-and-half uh, half crimson clover and half-perennial rye. You know, those are, our orchard systems are set up with really wide spacing so that we can graze the alleys, which we're also doing in the vineyards that I mentioned earlier. So we're intentionally creating a diverse forage um, in those alleyways for our sheep and chickens to graze as well. You know, we can go on and on, but essentially, you know, we're looking at what are we really trying to do with this system? Are we trying to add nitrogen? Are we trying to add biomass and organic matter? Are we trying to create wildlife habitat like we are in that swale area by planting, again, just a huge diversity of native, annual, perennial flowering plants, um, as well as, you know, some of those forage species for grazing. So there's, there's a lot of different examples, but we really look to what is the problem we're trying to solve, and then what mix of cover crops can we use to address that problem. You mentioned grazing and sheep. How do livestock fit into this system? I think they're a really important part, and they're one of the toughest parts to um, really do well. You know, a lot of people can get the growing of plants and the making of compost, 
And as we have at Troon taken the advice of Andrew Beattie, our consultant I mentioned earlier, and slowly layering on every year a more complex system, animals were something that we introduced to the system about four years in. We started with sheep, which are really compatible with vineyard systems. You know, goats are another obvious choice, but goats tend to browse on the vines, whereas sheep tend to graze close to the ground. And cows might be another obvious choice, but they can be destructive in vineyard systems too by scratching on the trellis systems or breaking irrigation lines or things like that. So sheep are a really ideal, very compatible um, choice for integration in, in vineyard systems. And the relationship between sheep and chickens in the context of rotational grazing is also really interesting. So, you know, the idea of rotational grazing is, is all biomimicry. We're looking at these large herds of herbivores out in the Great Plains in the U.S. or the steppe in, 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 uh, in Asia and Mongolia and these super productive grassland ecosystems that support massive herds of herbivores. As they move through and they graze, constantly just you know shoulder to shoulder with the whole herd, they're constantly eating, moving, pooping, peeing, and fertilizing as they move. And the really important part of rotational grazing is to give that land a rest period. A lot of times these big herds will maybe only visit that spot one time a year, or they'll come back around several months later when the grass has a chance to regenerate. So we're mimicking these systems that have been observed in nature and using portable electric fencing to set up individual paddocks. So we can do that down the alleys of vineyards or orchards, and we can protect young plantings from grazing or any damage to trees or vines that the animals might do. Um, and then as those vines and trees mature, we'll happily make these bigger sections that actually incorporate those trees. You know, trees will provide shade for the animals and so many other benefits, but the real reason for animal integration is multifold. Um, first, it's, it's grazing. It's, it's fewer passes of mowing. You know, one thing that you have to do in a no-till vineyard system is you need to mow. Maybe only a couple of times a year, three, four times a year, we'll go through and mow that vineyard. But if we can replace even one of those tractor passes with grazing, there's multiple benefits. One, we're saving on diesel, on time, on potentially creating more compaction by driving tractors and heavy implements through the vineyard, whereas the impact of sheep is relatively light. They graze, doing the same benefit that mowing has, but then they're also converting all of that organic matter, all of that forage in their digestive system of ruminants, which is this complex four-chambered you know, stomach, and they're inoculating it with all of the microbes that help them break down cellulose and these other hard-to-digest compounds in plants and make them available to the sheep. And as they deposit their manure throughout the vineyard, they're also depositing all of those microbes that are, again, masterful at breaking down forage and releasing these nutrients. So, you know, by comparison to mowing, where you don't get that inoculation, you just sort of lay that forage over and it slowly decomposes on the soil surface, you get actually a lot of loss of carbon that's, that those plants are made of, and it just releases to the atmosphere. Whereas with sheep and grazing and cover cropping, you can actually sequester that carbon into the soil and maintain it in a more stable way. 
Now, theory is one thing and data is another. And uh, I think a lot of farmers are really interested in, in actual data. So you recently did some soil tests. What changes did you find in the soil at Troon compared to our first tests in 2018? Yeah, to follow up on that study, we collected soil samples from 16 different locations around the farm, and we measured soil carbon and these other metrics of soil health simultaneously. And we collected soil at depths of 0 to 8 inches, representing that surface, 8 to 18 inches, and then 18 to 36 inches, that sort of deepest subsoil. And through applying these biodynamic and regenerative practices for four years, we were able to increase soil organic matter in the topsoil, that zero to eight inches, up to 74% in our vegetable garden and increased at 66% in one vineyard block. But you know, the, the really impressive gains we actually observed in the deepest soil horizon, that 18 to 36 inches. Soil organic matter increased between 100 and 340% in the vineyards and over 400% in the pasture. So, you know, to, in, to help interpret that enormous gain, 100% increase is doubling, say, from 1.2% to 2.4% soil organic matter. And we measured a minimum two-time increase uh, in soil organic matter in that deepest soil horizon across the entire farm, whether that was pasture, vineyards, garden, um, hayfield, all of that. And, and it was more than four times greater in the pasture compared to just four years earlier when we first sampled it. So, you know, a lot of academia is really slow to catch up, actually, on how beneficial farming or uh, regenerative farming practices can be at sequestering carbon. And what we're able to see using um, really robust soil sampling practices and, 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 you know, these techniques that I learned in grad school, both the collection and the lab analysis, um, we're really able to show robustly and scientifically that what our farming practices are doing are having an enormous impact on carbon sequestration. Those are really exciting results, to say the least, uh, Garrett. How do you see the future of carbon farming progressing at Troon Vineyard? I think there's a lot of opportunities to continue, you know, layering on those practices and those benefits. You know, one thing that we can't have a conversation about carbon sequestration without talking about water. You know, we're here in these western lands stricken by drought and wildfires, and these are uh, related to climate change. And so, therefore, we have water falling intensely, as it has been in California, flooding, creating erosion problems and landslides. And then there's other times of the year where we just won't see rain for nine months of the year. And so in this Mediterranean climate that we have here on the West Coast, where we have cold, wet winters and hot, dry summers, we don't get a lot of precipitation during the growing season. So we're really reliant on the water that's held in our soils and in our aquifers that we're tapped into that we have our wells in. And we have this capacity to recharge those aquifers through our farming practices by not tilling, by building soil structure, we increase the porosity where every drop of rain or snow that falls on this farm is able to infiltrate and what's not used by plants is recharging that aquifer. You know, by contrast, if you see any sort of erosion or you have any sort of water leaving your property, that is likely taking with it, um, you know, soil nutrients 
maybe that you applied as a fertilizer or that just exist in the soil, as well as that organic matter that's just washing away from that critical, you know, top six, 12 inches of soil. So I think as we continue to incorporate more diverse plantings, more, you know, diversify and refine our cover crop mixes across the farm, integrate more animals. You know, we're having, um, uh, our sheep are all giving birth in May. Um, as we intensify and layer on these new enterprises and new practices, we'll continue building organic matter, hopefully at a similar rate that we've been um, showing over the last four years. And as we build organic matter, we build the capacity of the soil to not just infiltrate more water, but also to hold on to it and make that available. I see soil as a sponge and there's a really amazing statistic that increasing organic matter in soils, only 1% can increase the soil's water holding capacity by about 20,000 gallons per acre, which is just enormous when you think about the amount of water that is needed to sustain a farm of this size. And so not only what more can we do, what can we intensify, but what, what can we do to offset some of these inputs and irrigation is one obvious one, whereas we sequester carbon and build organic matter, we have to irrigate less, meaning we're less reliant on that aquifer, and there's more water available to everybody who's sharing this aquifer. So uh, I'm sure that people would like to learn more about these strategies. Uh, what resources would you recommend for learning more about agricultural carbon sequestration and no-till farming? There's a couple of really inspiring documentaries for folks who are more visual focused. Um, I think to name two quickly, uh, The Biggest Little Farm uh, is a film that was made by the folks at Apricot Lane that I was farming with. When I first got into farming, they made a beautiful documentary that's really inspiring and to some extent technical as far as showing these practices and what, and what it actually looks like and how it translates and how much failure and challenge and struggle there is and how creative the solutions can be that farmers invent every day. And you know, we see ourselves here at Troon as this, uh, on this cutting edge, uh, leading edge of employing new novel practices and also doing the research to understand how they're impacting these metrics of soil health. So the biggest little farm really helps capture that um, another really wonderful documentary is Kiss the Ground um, that really takes a deep dive in a more um, focused, uh, a, a story that's more focused on climate change and the potential of agriculture as a solution. So those are really great um, examples. If you're more into reading or getting into the technical science of it, I think as much as the USDA, I could be critical of some of their the practices that they advocate for. There's a few um, practitioners that are doing a really amazing job. Ray Archuleta, for example, has worked for the USDA for the last 30 years. They have a branch called the Natural Resource Conservation Service, or the NRCS, that Ray goes around and he works with farmers to employ these practices, to apply for grants to help fund them. Um, and Ray's put out a bunch of YouTube videos, he's kind of a quirky, funny Southern dude, and uh, he's, he, he understands these, these principles of soil health at a really deep level and is able to translate them to just five very simple principles, and maybe it's a good way, um, what Ray says. So those five principles of soil health 
are keep a living root in the ground. You know, the longer that plant is photosynthesizing throughout the year, the more carbon they're sequestering. And plant cover crops is a way of keeping that living root in the ground. The third is animal integration. We talked about that and the benefits of that. Compost has been shown in academic studies. The application of compost can have this positive, can create this positive feedback loop where a one-time addition of compost can for several years, five plus years, there can have this continued effect of building carbon. And then the last one is just maximize biodiversity. You know, we talked about the, the benefits of resilience um, to the system and how a more resilient system creates this context in which plants can thrive and increase more nutrient-dense foods and more complex wines that are reflective of place. And by just applying these five principles of soil health, that um, these, are, these have been really inspiring to me to think about the ways that we can play with them and apply them here at Troon and continue to, you know, carbon farm here on our 100 acres and hopefully inspire others to do the same. Just to finish up and wrap things up, what does it mean to you personally to be able to farm this way? It means the world, to be honest. Um, I made a conscious choice in January to ask to move back onto the farm. And I think, to me, farming this way is a lifestyle. It's more than just a job. And what being able to do, or being able to just walk out of my door and be surrounded by a beautiful site, surrounded by the Siskiyou Mountains, hear bird chirping. Uh, at nighttime, I hear the frogs in the pond all night long. Um, there's no light pollution out here, so we see beautiful skies. Um, I feel filled up and inspired to farm in this way and to share this knowledge and to share these amazing, nutritious foods and beautiful wines with everybody who I can convince to come visit me here in Southern Oregon. So yeah, it really means the world to me. I could go on and on and I do love talking with people. So, you know, I really encourage all of our listeners to come down and visit us here in the Applegate or visit our tasting room in McMinnville and learn from our amazingly um, well-educated and inspired staff because everybody here, you know, I, I, I need to also acknowledge just the team I may be the director of agriculture, but I'm surrounded by an incredible team of people here who are all super passionate and see farming as more than a job, but as a lifestyle. So please come visit us. Well, thanks so much, Garrett. It's always exciting and, and a pleasure to talk regenerative agriculture and biodynamics with you. Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. We are happy to share this podcast with you from Troon Vineyard a Demeter Biodynamic and Regenerative Organic Certified Winery in Oregon's Applegate Valley. We farm like the world depends on it and produce authentic, naturally crafted wines. We will be sharing these in-depth podcasts several times a month. To learn more, I encourage you to visit our website at truenvineyard.com and those of the Regenerative Organic Alliance at regenorganic.org and Demeter Biodynamics at demeter-usa.org. Thanks for sharing our voyage to regenerative agriculture with us.